God, I, I prayed this morning that we would see the words of Jesus and that we would hear the words of Jesus and that the words of Jesus would, would be first and foremost in terms of importance to us. Not my words, not the words of pundits or of the media or of people or of our leaders, but your words. I pray, God, that they would uh, strengthen us as a church, give honor and glory to you, and that you'd unify us uh, through your word. So, obviously, if you have paid attention uh, to what's going on in our city, in this nation, around the world, uh, post-election, um, it, it, there's a lot of turmoil. Protesters by the thousands showing up everywhere saying that not my president, which is not new. There's a great article, I think it was in this latest time, it came out on Friday, um, the vitriol and anger and, and destructive speech is not new to presidential politics. And so the author, uh, the author of the magazine article was referring to a book that had been written that had done some historical research on the language surrounding um, political campaigns, presidential political campaigns. And uh, uh, while it's not new, this is what we have been through is not new, it is considered to be one of the five worst in terms of speech and anger and, and uh, destructiveness. But anyway, so it's not new. A um, lot of vandalism, a lot of threats of violence. I didn't, I had to check this when I first saw it, but do you know that the Canadian immigration server crashed from people in the U.S. checking out immigration policies um, from Americans to Canada. And, uh, you know, it, if, if, if um, so obviously uh, Trump and his supporters, quote, won, and, and Clinton and her supporters, quote, lost. But in 2012, when, Ob when Obama won, Trump called for protest and similar types of marches in Washington. And so what I want to be really clear on today is that um, I am not on either side. And in fact, I didn't vote for one of the two uh, major um, candidates. Um, and that's not a statement on if you did, okay? The last sermon I said something about capitalism and, the, and, and, and then I really clarified it the following time in the West Side and said, I'm not a socialist. And then I got comments, what's wrong with being a socialist? If you had a socialist in the church, what would that mean? And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. So, all right, I'm not on a side. Um, I, I see myself as a citizen of the kingdom of God, and that has implications for how we live out our world and in our live out politics in our world today. But again, it's not a full, comprehensive message on that. Elev every presidential election elevates the emotions or the soul and the psyche of the nation, and we've and we've seen that we're still living in it. And what I want to address is why the emotion. Why the, on one side, elation, okay, uh, and the other side, anger and, and frustration? Why the emotion? Why the extent of emotion? Um, is, is, is Trump our savior? Is Trump the devil? Was, was 
Hillary going to be our savior? Was, is Hillary the devil? Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, and it is probably, the, it's considered one of the clearest explanations of why we have this divided political um, situation that we do. And uh, the book is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he argues, and I, and I have a slide today. It's been a while, I know, but I, didn't, I wanted to be clear. All right? I wanted to be clear. He argues that there are six pillars that form our moral foundations and that our social and political and religious inclinations are guided by these six pillars. And so these six pillars are First of all, care and harm, and, and I would encourage you to get the book if you want more information on this, because to go into these in detail, we'd be here for hours. Is anybody familiar with this book? One person, good. Um, well, I'd like more of you to be familiar with it, but I'm glad at least there is one person. So, care and harm, uh, liberty and oppression, fairness and cheating, loyalty and betrayal, authority and subversion, sanctity and degradation. Now, his argument, and again, this is where I want you to go to get the book and don't answer, ask me, a, uh, well, we can talk about it a little bit, but um, he argues that the first two, care and harm and liberty versus oppression, are the dominant moral foundations for what we consider liberals. They operate in, in the third one, in the fairness and cheating pillar, but it is subservient to the pre previous two. He also argues that conservatives operate in all six. He, he has, one of his chapters is why, why conservatives have the, the advantage. He's not a conservative, this, 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 the author of this book. But while the conservatives operate in all six, it is the four, five, and six authority, um, loyalty, sanctity that are more prominent in conservative circles. Now, I don't think any of us would say that any of those six pillars would not be moral issues, right? We would all consider them aspects of a, a moral framework, a moral and ethical framework, right? I mean, that's, I, I think everybody would. But in terms of what dominates our political, religious, and, and social interaction, um, the liberals lean towards numbers one and two, the conservatives lean towards five, four, five, and six, but really span them all. And he says this, Jonathan Hyde, I thought it's just the, the, the language around um, what we would consider religious terms is, is pretty amazing in this book. He says, we are born to be righteous, but we have to learn what exactly people like us should be righteous about. So we have this, we would call it the consciousness of God or the image of God in us, this, this longing for righteousness, and we've talked about this before. But he says we, we have to give it some instruction, right? because if, if we have this 
this, uh, this sense of self that's longing for righteousness. And righteousness is just this, this broad term that is definitely moral, it's definitely religious, it's definitely political and social, but it's this, it's this broad idea for what we would consider to be the good or the right and what broadly communicates the fulfilled life, human flourishing across the board and for individuals. We all long for it. But we're born with this, and then it needs to be educated. Now, we think, we think that we come to our political and religious social conclusions through rational reasoning. It's not true. Our affections take us there, what we love. And we are instructed on those things by the people that we're around and the circumstances we're in and the events of our lives. And then we put some moral strategic reasoning behind that to create a defense around what we love. That's why anybody can argue for what they stand for and they're going to find scientific evidence to prove what they hold on to. Because what they're holding on to is not just right and wrong. What, what we hold on to is our sense of self, our sense of what makes us right and true and good. He calls it groupish righteousness. We are drawn towards groups of people that, that define according to our moral foundations, which are at an affection uh, gut level, we're drawn toward those groups that, that affirm those things. And we were instructed in those things from our very earliest beginnings as children. We tend to think of these things as evil or good, right? Black and white. Right and wrong. But it's a much more complex than that. It really is. And so I want to look at Mark chapter 12. And we're going we're gonna, to... Jesus is hitting this issue directly. Jesus is issue, hitting this issue directly. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We're actually going to go through uh, 42. Uh, we're going to take it as a, at a few chunks here. So it starts out. One of the scribes, so Jesus is in the temple. This is at the conclusion of the story. We're going to be dealing with the, the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus in the coming weeks. But Jesus is in the temple, and he's taking on all of the authorities. He's already addressed the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes are the last ones, the lawyers. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, Jesus and these other officials. And seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, 
is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is confronted, all of these, these officials. These, there are political officials, those are the Herodians. The religious and, and kind of Jewish nation officials, because they were a nation under a nation, and so the Sanhedrin was the ruling council for Israel, and the Sanhedrin was made up of mostly Pharisees, some Sadducees, and then Herodians were the people in leadership that were also um, kind of very comfortable with Rome. And so Jesus has taken them all on, and now he's at the, he's at the scribes, and the scribes are the lawyers. They're the ones that they, they, they are literally writing and making copies of, of Scripture and are devoted to the study of the Jewish Scriptures. And so they know their Bibles. The scribes know their Bibles. Now Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment. All right, remember, now remember the last sermon was the rich man who came up and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. And he says, I have done all of those. Well, the rich man missed the key commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall put no others before me. You shall honor the Sabbath. Those are all God word commandments. And then do not covet, covetousness being idolatry according to the New Testament. And so the, the rich man missed the most important ones. But here the scribe, the scribe affirms the scribe affirms Jesus' articulation of the greatest commandment. And the scribe, he gets it. He gets it in theory. And Jesus says, in contrast to the rich man, because what the, what the rich man, he said, it is near impossible. If not, in fact, he said it is impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And that's when the apostles said, well, who then? Who then can make it? With the assumption that material wealth was a sign of spiritual blessing, affirmation from God. And Jesus said, well, with God, everything is possible. Here, the scribe gets it, and Jesus says, you're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You understand what it means to have your, your affections given to God. And not just your affections, your affections are followed up by your actions, because that's your, that's your soul, your body, your energies, and your mind, and, and there's an intellect, an intellectual pursuit for knowledge of God and deepening in their, under, in their understanding of God. And so the scribe got it, but he's not done. Mark is not done. So now we go to verse 35. Jesus taught in the temple, and then he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. All right, so this is a really challenging passage to, to scholars um, because it looks like, so Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching to the crowd. 
And he, and he raises this question to question the scribes. How can the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? David calls him his Lord. If David calls him his Lord, how can he be David's son? Why would David be worshiping his son? And then you have to take a step back and you're like, well, wait a minute. The Messiah is David's son, right? It is David's son. So why is Jesus, it, Jesus is like confronting the scribes because they are teaching that the Messiah, which is him, is David's son. Well, it, it seems like what Jesus is doing is that he's bringing up what the scribes are not addressing. That Jesus is not only the son, but Jesus is ultimately, well, excuse me, the Messiah is not ultimately just David's son. The Messiah is ultimately God. The Messiah is ultimately God. The God, specifically the Lord, that you just told me, scribe, deserved all of our love and affections and emotions and strengths and body and mind. It's not just the Son. The Son would be an heir to the throne. An heir to the throne that would come and overthrow Rome and set up Israel once again. So the scribes were accurate, and that's the promise that God gave to King David in 2 Samuel 7. The story is there. You will have a son, and he will reign on the throne, and the nations of the world will bow down to him, which is a fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Judah through his dad Jacob, who was Israel. You, from your line will come a son that your brothers will bow down to and all the nations of the world will bow down to. And so Jesus is the Christ, that Messiah. But the scribes were emphasizing the, the political aspect of the descendant of David. And not on, I don't, I don't want to say a spiritual or religious aspect, but, the, the, but that's what it was. The scribes wanted the king to establish their kingdom so that they, the good side, would finally rule over the they, the Gentiles, the evil side. The son of David would do that. The son of David would do that. God was thinking much broader. Messiah Lord was thinking much broader, and that the Lord did not see Israel as the good, and the Messiah did not see the Gentiles as the evil. The Messiah saw all humanity as evil, beginning with the Jews, ending with the Gentiles all in one pot. And you can see, and actually, um, there were several different threads of Bible at the time of Christ. In term, when, I, when I say threads in terms of Bible, here's what I meant. Um, 
the Bible is a, 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 a compilation of a bunch of books that have been assembled, all right? There are different ways to assemble those books. There are different ways to assemble those books. And there were two camps, two camps in Israel at the time, and both camps had a way of putting together the law, prophets, and the writings. Those are the three big divisions. No, um, there was no controversy over those three divisions. Then there was not any controversy of what books belonged in the law, prophets, and the writings. But there were several different organizations of those books within the big chunk of law, prophets, and writings. And one translation, or excuse me, one compilation was a compilation Um, that emphasized the coming king who would overthrow Rome, okay? So here's basically the deal. Um, And it's been a couple years since I've I've done my reading on this. But if you end your Bible with 2 Chronicles, it ends anticipating a king to rule the land. If you end your Bible with Malachi 4, you anticipate uh, the prophet who is going to come and judge the world and establish the kingdom. So one version of the Bible, just because of a different layout, reflected a, a different hope. The way that one Bible ended, okay, this, so this is, you're, you're done reading the Old Testament, you're like, okay, you're either going to wait for the king to come back and destroy Rome, Are you going to wait for the Messiah to come to judge all of the world and set up his eternal kingdom? And this this interchange with the scribe and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians reflected this. They wanted a human kingdom. They didn't want the eternal kingdom. They wanted a, a world in which they were the good and the rest were the evil. Does that sound familiar? So now we go to Mark 12, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So the scribes are technically accurate, but morally bankrupt. They are taking advantage of the weakest of the weak, the single moms. They have single moms, it just doesn't say single moms, that are extremely poor and nobody's taking care of them. So the scribes, they know their Bibles, but they are morally bankrupt. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out here. See, what is apparent in the scribes is is their love not for God, even though they know the right answers, but their love for self. Jesus described, they like to wear the long robes. They like to have the places of position in the community. They like to eat at the best restaurants. They have these long prayers. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, which I have not read all of, but I am working on it, 
It's a classic book on what it means to love, to love God. He says, we see the world of mankind to be exceedingly busy and active, and the affections of men are the springs of the motion. Take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all anger, zeal, and affectionate desire, and the world would be in a great measure motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity amongst mankind or any pursuit whatsoever. Why? Because our, what we love is always expressed in what we do. And the scribes may be able to articulate the great doctrines of the faith. I mean, Jesus himself said, you are not far away from the kingdom of God in terms of what your understanding is, but in terms of your actions, you have, you're not reflecting at all the second part of that commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is a hatred towards the weakest visible in the scribe, and it is masked in religion, is masked in religion, or morality. It's masked in morality. And morality is now the a platform that both sides, from a political perspective, are, are using to mount against the other side. And then we finally get to the last part here, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And Jesus doesn't say anything bad about that. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so you see here, the widow expresses a total love for God. A total love for God. Now, we can all sit back and say, was that wise for that widow to do that? It's not the point. <laughs> it's not the point. And it's not a message that's saying everybody has to give all of their money away to follow Jesus. That's not the point either. This, this little snippet about the widow is set in, juxtapositioned with all of these other stories about the scribes, and if we had the time, we could have read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is at the end of that interaction. Here's a woman that loves God totally, and nobody considers her, notices her, but she is exemplifying what it means to love God. Her actions show it. So what is this election, or anything else that prompts us towards fear, rage, malice, and violence towards others, or gloating. I was listening to the radio yesterday and there was, you know, they were doing interviews of families where the family, husband and wife, were split on who they voted for and one was gloating and was going to gloat at the Thanksgiving holidays and Christmas holidays because, you know, their team won. So you've got the emotions and the affections present on, on both sides, okay? There's 
there is hatred and fear and anger and suspicion, and then there's gloating and disdain and contempt and self-righteousness on the other. I read this article the day after the election in the Tribune. It is incredible. And I'm going to read, it's a, it's an, it was on the op-ed page. Um, it's by a woman named Laura Rydberg, who is a graduate student at uh, St. Kate's here. And it's short, but I'm going to read you the whole thing because it, 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 it is incredibly um, strong in observing the central problem. It's called a liberal view. What has this election proven us liberals to be? Trump's win tells America that as a nation, we are having a heated debate around the word privilege. We liberals either misunderstood, underestimated, or flat out ignored the different opinions that circulate around that word. For us, the privilege means the pardon that white skin bestows and the pain inflicted by rigid rigid Christian supremacy. It means acknowledging that many of today's walking wounded are the result of yesterday's actions. But for the quiet electoral majority whose voice was not given an outlet until Tuesday night, the word privilege is anathema. For them, it is an oppressive concept that denies their struggles, curses their values, and undermines their often shredded pride. We know it to be a word that attempts to amend the past. They know it as a word that aims to destroy the future. After all, they, the privileged, watched as the pundits and the newsroom, newsrooms highlighted only the foibles of their candidate. They simmered under the pressure of increased taxes and devalued dollars. They suffered from inadequate housing, education, and governmental programs. They watched as their most precious principles of troop support, protection of the unborn, veneration of the founding fathers, and the everyday heroics of small businesses were mocked and reviled. In their gloom, they built their support. And what an abutment the contact of these two worldviews proved to be. We, the liberals, watched the Trump victory in shock. How could this be? Were we not on the side of the good? Were we not fighting for the poor, the vulnerable, the abused? Were we not better than they? Do you see the six pillars kind of sprinkled throughout this? They will be told that they are to blame. And yet, I wonder whose lack of kindness, whose lack of understanding, and whose lack of charity has led us to this place. I do not say this to excuse the elevation of a man who is loose with his morals and quick to excuse himself. Nor do I say it to excuse those who voted Trump in based solely on misogyny, racism, or any other sort of malice. But I do want us to ask, but I do want to ask us, the liberals, what has this election proven us to be? I thought that was a really profound statement. It would have been exactly the same attitudes had it been the other way. And that's what I really want you guys to understand I'm saying. I'm not, this is not a pro-Trump, pro-anybody, pro-Clinton. 
What we think are our moral foundations are actually the foundations for our own righteousness, the means of our own power, security, comfort, identity, and fulfillment. We are building our own kingdoms. As a result, we, like the religious and moral authorities at the time of Jesus, fail to truly love those around us, especially for those that we classify as our enemies. Our love for whom, according to Jesus, is the sign of what it truly means to love somebody. He says anybody can love their friends. Anybody can love the weak. Can you love your enemies? And that to Jesus is the sign of love. It's the sign of true righteousness. So if we're building what we consider our righteous frameworks, our groupish righteousness around these six pillars, and we come to the point where we disdain the other, then those six pillars are not just our pillars of a moral foundation. They're the pillars of a self-righteous desire to build our own kingdoms and to find our own security and power and comfort in knowing that there's an us that is good and an evil that is them, and we've got to beat them. And we've got to beat them. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is something different. The kingdom of God is something different. And we need to ask the question, are we trying to build our own kingdom where we are rich, where we are secure, where we are powerful, and we are in control? And I would say that our political dynamic reflects that, especially when the emotions arise that then give power to action that is clearly unloving, uncaring, unkind, what this woman identified very, very clearly. The command isn't to know the greatest command. The command isn't... um, to have just this this intellectual affirmation of good things. The command to love God will mean that is reflected in a love towards people, especially those that we are most vehemently against. Let me pray. God, thank you for I thank you for the promise of Christ and the kingdom of God that gives us security and it gives us a sense of power and a sense of control and a sense of fulfillment and, and well-being. Uh, but God, we recognize that these things are not for, for us to, to wade in and then to throw bombs and accusations against those who don't agree with us. But God, we, we find that there is strength in the kingdom of God to love those around us, especially those that, we are, that are against us. So God, we as a church would pray, help us to, help us to deepen, truly deepen in what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And God, when we are faced with the most challenging of circumstances that come from others, Father, draw us into a place where with the strength that only you can provide, give us the strength to love those people, even as they destroy us. In Jesus' name, amen.